from Vermont Public and the NPR Network. This is Brave Little State. I'm Josh Crane. And this is Chapter 3 of our special series, Recognized. If you haven't heard Chapters 1 and 2 yet, you should go back and listen to those first. In this chapter, we'll pick up where we left off, after Vermont created its own state recognition process and officially recognized four Vermont groups as Abenaki tribes. It was a process that all but excluded Odonac and Woolinac, the only two federally recognized Western Abenaki nations. And more than a decade later, they still have something to say about it. A quick heads up that this episode covers sensitive material. Listen with care. Reporter Elodie Reed takes it from here when we come back. In July, Odenak and Woolinak First Nations issued a joint press release. The two governments represent 3,000 or so citizens. And those governments said, in light of a new peer-reviewed article, that the relevant authorities should investigate Vermont's state recognition process and then take appropriate action. That peer-reviewed article was published in the American Indian Culture and Research Journal by French-Canadian scholar Daryl LaRue. LaRue studied the core families in the group that preceded Vermont's state-recognized tribes. And through genealogical analysis, he concluded that most of those families do not have Abenaki ancestry. Vermont's four state-recognized tribes, Alnu, Kowasek, Musiskoi, and Nalhegan, responded to LaRue's paper. Their statement said, in part, that the sources LaRue chose to use for his research were shaped by, quote, indigenous groups that hold a federal-level recognition status and are couched in terms of asserting control, exerting power, and eliminating competition. It's a veiled but unmistakable reference to Odenak and Molinak First Nations. Daryl LaRue, the author, told me he started this research and got independent funding for it before he was ever in touch with anyone at these First Nations. But it is true that to be a citizen, Odenak and Wolenak do require genealogical documentation. That said, the more we reported this story out, we learned that genealogy is just one part of how Indigenous nations determine citizenship. This is not about individual ancestry. And when it moves from being about a people, a nation, a collective, and defending their land and place-based rights to defending your own individual rights based on some ancestral claim, that's, that's a total problem. And I think that is an appropriation. Meet Kim Tallbeer. She's a professor at the University of Alberta and a citizen of the Sisseton Wapitan Oyate, a federally recognized tribe. And she's the author of Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging and the False Promise of Genetic Science. Her name often pops up when discussing claims of belonging to an indigenous nation. Tallbear thinks whether or not one person has indigenous ancestors is relevant, but not the only important consideration. We're really dealing with living communities and proving relationships to living people. I think if, if what you are proving connection to is only in the archive or in the grave, that's not what we do. We, we show connection to living communities. If it's farther away than your grandparents, it's virtually never going to happen. You know, there have to be people that remember you, that know you, that remember your parents, that know your family, that can slot you back into the history and the dynamics and the social networks of that community. Tallbear says the role of Indigenous nations, those living communities of citizens, is to collectively fight for the rights they're owed by colonial entities. Remember, 
indigenous nations are supposed to have government-to-government relationships with countries like the U.S. and Canada. They are political bodies. And Talbert thinks any state recognition process gets in the way of that. Vermont's process, for instance, requires state-recognized groups to sign away their rights to land claims. I don't think states should be in the business of recognition. Our historical agreements and treaties are not with states. States are direct competitors to tribes and tribal sovereignty. Part of what tribal sovereignty means is that indigenous nations get to set their own criteria for who can belong as a citizen. And Talbert stresses that belonging is not something an individual can claim without input from that indigenous nation. Because it is absolutely not a private matter. And that is something that I think is really hard for settler institutions to understand because they're thinking in terms of gender and ethnicity. This is a question that's asked on every Native reservation across the friggin' United States and Canada. This is the chief of Odenak First Nation, Rick Obamsawin, speaking at a public meeting. He says it's very normal for Indigenous peoples to ask about each other's families and ancestry to establish their connection to one another. I moved back to my community after 30 years. The first thing an elder said to me was, who's your father? Who's your mother? I can date my family, my personal family, back in my community for over 300 years. All of us can. That's the question we ask. We are all looking for the same thing. We're looking for our true history who we are, our real being. We want to know if we have, if we truly have family members here in the United States, we want to bring this home. We want to welcome our families. Vermont state-recognized tribes said in a statement over the summer, quote, to whatever generational degree removed we may be, we are still connected. Also in that statement, state-recognized tribes pointed out that indigenous nations who are federally recognized met criteria, quote, developed by Euro-American governmental recognition structures. In other words, the state-recognized tribes are saying that federally recognized indigenous nations are using colonial standards to define who belongs to their communities, and that those criteria are too exclusive. State-recognized tribes say they're being, quote, unfairly scrutinized. An example of this played out at a meeting of the Vermont Commission on Native American Affairs last year. It was soon after that commission's current chair, Rich Holshue, was nominated for that position. Last year we had a we had a Zoom meeting, and you were directly asked if you were indigenous, and you said that you were not indigenous. I am of indigenous heritage. I am not by the definition that was offered that day. That's Beverly Little Thunder, a former member of the commission, talking to Holshue. Little Thunder later resigned from the commission, she says, in part because of this exchange. At the time, one of the guidelines for the commission was that the chair should be of indigenous heritage. I'm just bringing it up because it was handed out and it was approved in our last meeting. I do solemnly affirm that I am of indigenous heritage. It is not within three generations, and those are my exact words at that time. In other words, even though Holshue says he does have indigenous ancestors, neither his parents nor his grandparents have ever been enrolled with a federally recognized indigenous nation. That's a requirement for belonging to Odenak First Nation. And it's fairly similar to a requirement for belonging to the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe in North Dakota, the federally recognized indigenous nation where Beverly Little Thunder is enrolled. But remember, Vermont's state recognition law doesn't require federal-level criteria for the membership of state-recognized tribes. And that's created space for relative newcomers. I was raising, raising a family, trying to work late in life when 
all of those things began to fall apart for me. Rich Holshue again. He says he joined Elnu in the years after it became state-recognized. And I was still looking to understand better. I recognized that our connection to place uh, and to our mother was what was missing in all of that. Um, The economic system, the religious system, the value system, the societal system. I looked to see where those values resided in this land. And um, it became pretty clear to me that indigenous people are in or aspire to be um, relationship with the places that they live. That's what indigeneity is. There are all kinds of lived experiences. We are not less than here. We are different. different experiences. We are descendant communities without a central base, without that kind of continual presence in one community, without enfranchisement by a federal government that devises laws to suit themselves. Just a personal view, but I think that if someone is willing to adopt the culture, that there should be a venue for acceptance into the culture. This is Brent Ferguson. He says he joined Nulhegan in 2021 since his family is related to that group's leader, Don Stevens. Ferguson is sharing a view here that I've heard a number of times from folks affiliated with Vermont state-recognized tribes, that historically, Indigenous nations sometimes adopted settlers into their community, and that they should use the same approach to belonging today. Much like we as Americans are willing to accept immigrants, who want to be American into our fold. It is a great, vast melting pot, and that is perhaps the best thing that Native Americans passed on to their colonial conquerors. From Ferguson's perspective, if indigenous nations continue limiting membership to those who can establish genealogical ties, they risk their population numbers dwindling to the point where they can no longer exist. And it will eventually result in diminution of all Native American tribes in America because eventually we'll breed ourselves out. Okay, so there are people like Brent Ferguson and Rich Holshue who joined these communities relatively recently. There are others who have been involved since they were kids. I also testified as a youngin before the Vermont State Legislature during our journey to becoming state-recognized. Like Bonita Lenga, a member of Missisquoi who we heard from in Chapter 1. I distinctly remember sitting in the hot seat As I collected my thoughts, sitting in silence before a panel of adults, these are just a few examples of my involvement with the tribe during my formative years and involvement that continues to this day. And then there's Burlington resident Andrea Brett. I've always known I'm Abenaki growing up with those, that culture, the traditions, the spiritual practices. Brett is not a member of a state-recognized tribe or a federally recognized indigenous nation. But she says she's Abenaki, that she grew up learning stories in the language from her father, and that she remembers visiting known Abenaki communities as a child, including at Odenak. And because I can't find an official birth record for whatever the current system wants, all of a sudden I'm not quote-unquote real. And I'm like, hello, I've known this my whole life. And 
to say who gets to decide that the wounds that it's opened up in me that I thought I had healed. Brett says she thinks there is an issue in Vermont of people claiming to be Abenaki when they are not and misappropriating Abenaki culture. But she doesn't think it's her place to decide who is or isn't Abenaki either. And for me, it's difficult because I feel like I'm in no man's land. I never would go out and claim that I'm a Native American or anything like that. This is Chanakota of Heinsberg. She's also not a member of any state-recognized tribe or federally recognized indigenous nation. But I definitely would like, I felt a sense of connection to that ancestor who gave me that sense of connection to the land. And I do think that that's what a lot of people are seeking in when they're seeking these things. They want to feel like they're not just a conquering colonist descendant. Coda is speaking partly from personal experience. Then there was always the stories that, um, you know, that my grandfather, his dad, was part Native. He didn't look fully white, um, and I, I think that that's contributed to why it was so easy to believe this. These stories were strong enough that Coda says some in her extended family actually joined a Vermont group in the 1990s, one of the predecessors of today's state-recognized tribes. Coda says that no one in her immediate family followed suit. They didn't feel like they had enough to go on. Still, that rumored Indigenous ancestry was part of her family's story. And my mom used to say, your father was Native enough that he could have gone to college for free if he'd just tried and applied. And even though Coda says she always questioned these stories, she also says that they were still meaningful to her. It wasn't until a few years ago that she started to understand her family history more completely. A friend added her to a Facebook group where people, including citizens of Odenak First Nation, were discussing the controversy surrounding Vermont's state-recognized tribes. It was a lot for her to process. So yeah, so the information in the group was quite a shock. Like... Who are these people to tell us how we can view our own racial identity or ethnic identity? So I was recognizing like, okay, you know, this is making me feel emotional and I need to dive deeper in so I make sure that I understand what they're saying. Coda listened and read and researched. And she arrived at a similar conclusion to the Bureau of Indian Affairs after reviewing the St. Francis Sokoki Band's petition for federal acknowledgement. Namely, We didn't have continuous tribes here. And once you really kind of start looking at the history and not just taking what people say at face value, you, like, you start to realize like, oh, wow, these might just be stories. It was around this time that she ordered a DNA test for herself. She got the results back just a few weeks ago. When I did the DNA test, it showed that we have Basque descent. Basque, a Southwestern European ethnic group. And it makes sense now to, like, that was helpful to understand the, like, why they don't look fully white. It hurt. It was painful. And I don't think that my family members were lying. I do not, and please do quote me on that. Like, I do not believe that my family, any of my family members were lying. I believe that they thought that it was true. 
they were just caught up in it. And it was easy to believe because of how my grandfather looked. It might take Coda a while to fully process everything. But one thing she's already decided is that she wants to share her story. And just a heads up, you can hear Coda's children loudly sharing their stories in the background, too. When I fa- finally did get the DNA, it was like a, a big unpacking moment that has like, I'm, st- I'm actually just coming out of in terms of like, okay, all right, I'm, I'm willing to talk about this. I want to talk about this. I feel like I, I understand it. I do think that I have that kind of unique perspective of like, hey, these are, we grew up with these stories, but you need, we need to make sure, you need to make sure that your stories are true. Um, And if you haven't done that work, then yeah, there's a, you should probably do that work. (laughs) Coda's story is not unique. In fact, this happened to my own family. Growing up, I was told my paternal grandmother was, quote, part Native American, with zero proof we were connected to the Mi'kmaq or Abenaki communities we claimed. Because I think white American culture does have a thing about Indians that that we don't quite understand. This is Philip Deloria, Harvard University history professor and citizen of the federally recognized Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. He wrote a book about how white Americans have long imitated indigenous people. It's called Playing Indian. Here he is in 1998 speaking about the book. Uh, Americans have invested in the very weird practice of dressing up like Native people uh, throughout American history. The Boston Tea Party, of course. Who could forget the Boston Tea Party, which we all learn in fifth grade? Or the Tammany Society of New York, uh, sort of a fraternal order. The leaders of that were called sachems, and they had little Indian rituals and these kinds of things. Two other scholars point to theories about why settlers, quote, play Indian. And these theories have to do with what Chana Coda said a few minutes ago. They want to feel like they're not just a conquering colonist descendant. Daryl LaRue, who wrote the peer-reviewed article published over the summer about Vermont state-recognized tribes, cites the racial shifting theory. This comes from anthropologist Cersei Sturm, who argues that during the civil rights movements of the 1960s, white Americans started minoritizing themselves, as in claiming minority identities. It's to sort of suggest that they really aren't to blame for the ways in which racism um, are uh, is sort of occurring in the 20th century. Kim Talbear, the University of Alberta professor, takes this theory one step further. She says self-indigenization is an example of late-stage settler colonialism. Here she is speaking at a UVM presentation earlier this year. We see the culmination of this indigenous death to make settler life when settler state citizens with no belonging to living tribal nations take a DNA test and pronounce, I am 5% Native American. Playing Indian along with assuming definitional control and property rights in our biologicals and our kinship relations enables settler society to appropriate yet more of our resources. Tallbear isn't the only one concerned about that misappropriation of resources intended for indigenous peoples. The federally recognized Delaware Nation in Oklahoma even appointed a representative to combat what it calls corporations posing as indigenous nations, or CPAIN. 
All right. Um, I'd like to call this regular meeting of the uh, Vermont Commission on Native American Affairs, June 14th, uh, 2023, um, to order. The Vermont Commission on Native American Affairs is tasked with overseeing policies and programs for Indigenous peoples in Vermont. It's appointed by Vermont's governor. And in the couple of years I've been covering these meetings, no commissioners have been citizens of Odinac or Woolinac First Nations. In fact, members of Vermont's state-recognized tribes get priority as appointees. And there are tangible benefits for those groups as a result. Among its business this past year, the commission received a grant to write up an Abenaki curriculum for Vermont schools. And I'm really pleased to say that Seventh Generation Foundation is committing $50,000 toward this initiative. They also welcomed the president of Vermont Law and Graduate School after it announced that members of state-recognized tribes are now eligible for its First Nations scholarship. It's very exciting. State-recognized tribes are generally eligible for funding from four federal agencies. And in Vermont, members of Congress have earmarked money, too. If you remember the nonprofit Al Nubaiwi from the beginning of this series, the one that put on the exhibit at the Ethan Allen Homestead Museum, they received a quarter million dollars in 2021 with help from then-Senator Patrick Leahy. In 2022, Senator Bernie Sanders got the Nalhegan state-recognized tribe $350,000 to appoint a cultural preservation educator and coordinator. The nonprofit attached to Missisquoi recently received half a million dollars in federal funds to renovate a space for, quote, tribal programming. And another half million dollars from the state funded a storytelling project from the Vermont Abenaki Artists Association. Even Vermont Public, through a fund for independent creators, has awarded Vermont Folklife $8,000 for a documentary series about traditional cultural practices. And this series is being made in collaboration with two artists who belong to Vermont state-recognized tribes. There's also the recently created Vermont Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was established in 2022 by Vermont legislation to address the harm state policies have caused marginalized groups, including Indigenous peoples. Rick Obamsawin, Odinex Tribal Council Chief, says he worries about what would happen if the commission were to make reparations. You got to understand this is really, once again, this is really a money issue. Or, or you know, when, when they try to um, fix the wrongs with money, many wolves come to the sheep's pack, okay? So there'll be many people out there trying to, to go after this money and, and these, these claims. I just want to really, really make sure that the, this all goes to the, to the right people. A member of the El New state-recognized tribe was recently appointed as one of the group's three commissioners, an $80,000 a year position. Beyond the money issue, Chief Rick Obamswin and other officials and citizens from Odinac are upset about the authority that positions like this give Vermont state-recognized tribes. So, you know, sitting on a commission like that, making decisions for our, you know, for where things are going to go to, you know, to, to help fix the wrong that was done to our people... I would have liked it to be someone who could clearly identify that they were one of our people. It's, it's really clear to me that this is politics, and politics is about power and control. Rich Holshue again, the chair of the Vermont Commission on Native American Affairs. On this matter of politics, some members and allies of Vermont's state-recognized tribes have wondered publicly whether Odinek is pushing for more of a platform in Vermont so it can make land claims and profit off of hydropower projects in the region. 
and they allege UVM professor David Massell is helping them do that. He's the professor who invited members of Odinac to speak at UVM in 2022. Massell and the hydropower company Hydro-Quebec deny they've been working together. I also submitted a public records request to UVM this spring, asking for emails between Massell and Hydro-Quebec in the months before and after the UVM event. UVM said it had no such records. Back to Rich Holshue. He says he actually understands why Odinac and Wollinac First Nations are speaking more forcefully here in Vermont. That's their job. That's their charge. They have been given uh, federal recognition by the Canadian government. And that that does come with um, certain uh, privileges and benefits and accesses. I don't begrudge that at all. I think it's wonderful that they've been able to do what they've done. Um, I don't think that it needs to diminish anyone else at all. I don't understand that kind of thinking. I think they're saying that they feel diminished, specifically in this part of their territory, because of state recognition and the power that's conferred on the state-recognized tribes, that there's just like not space for them in our system at the moment. It's not competition for a limited pie to use that really, you know, worn-out analogy. I think people would disagree with you. I think there are a lot of folks who say it is a limited pie. The pie is created by the limitations of the federal governments, by the colonial governments. They created that situation. And so within that system, I can see that being perceived as competition. I, I, I do not believe the system is valid. There's no doubt that governments from colonial times up through today created and perpetuated systems that have oppressed and marginalized Indigenous peoples, to say the least. But scholar Kim Talbert says groups like Vermont state-recognized tribes are operating within colonial systems in a completely different way than Indigenous nations like Odinac and Wollinac. Whereas actual Native nations who have managed to survive these vicious colonial nation-states must articulate our relational rules as best we can within the compromised spaces available to us. By nature of being long identified as Indigenous peoples, Odinac and Molinac First Nations citizens have been subjected to things like residential schools, family separation, cultural assimilation. Experiences, she says, that groups who have only recently become visible, such as Vermont state-recognized tribes, do not have. Romanticized narratives of hiding in plain sight are used by self-Indigenizers to discredit and further dislocate Native people from the landscape of the living. Self-Indigenizers build their authoritative voices by grabbing from the mic and speaking from false historical foundations about actual Native people's lives and what should be done about and to us. I asked Rich Holshue about this too. The concept of, quote, grabbing the mic and the possibility of handing it back. If they're asking you, though, to step aside in order for their voices to be heard, like, what's your response to that? I support the voices of all Indigenous people being heard. I, I have never said that they should not be heard. I support that. Is there, are there ways you can proactively um, facilitate that? Um, I know we've talked about a past commission meeting with, you know, they asked to be on the agenda. They weren't put on it. You certainly let them speak. Mm-hmm. But even the, just the formality of putting them on the agenda, that wasn't done. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if you think that was a mistake um, and if there are formal ways to include those voices 
um, for people who just continually say they don't feel included? I am open to exploring any of those things. Uh, I don't know what it would be. Um, I know that I know how this commission was statutorily convened, what its mission is in law. Um, I have tried to allow people to speak. We have lots of allies. We need allies. Uh, we're very welcoming. We're very open. Molly Obamswin is an Odenak citizen you've heard in Chapter 1. She says it's important for direct descendants of the Western Abenaki First Nations to reconnect. And then, for those who are not direct descendants... There are so many ways to respectfully and appropriately be a part of a Native community without having to become Native yourself. We just don't want to be extracted from anymore. So, where can things go from here? That's when we come back. With pretty much everyone I talked to for this series, even those whose voices I couldn't fit, I asked some version of the question, where do you want things to go from here? There are a few general camps of thought. Vermont's governor, Phil Scott, falls in the first camp, avoidance. In September of last year, Governor Scott suggested he would be willing to listen to Odenak First Nation officials. But then his office kept saying they hadn't set up a time. And finally, in April of this year, he said it was not a high priority for him. Governor, are you interested in learning more about it? Again, I am not going to get caught in the middle of this. Um, We took action 20 years ago. Um, and recognize uh, the Vermont Abenakis. This sounds like it's a dispute uh, between two factions within the Abenaki and Odenaks, and uh, I think that they need to settle it. It's not something that I'm going to get involved in. The governor did say during this press briefing last spring that he might be more inclined to meet if it's something the Vermont legislature was calling for, but that's not what he was hearing. Indeed, shortly after the press briefing, the Vermont House, Senate, and U.S. congressional delegation all issued resolutions and statements upholding the four state-recognized tribes. Governor Scott has done this as well. The second camp of thought about how to move forward is putting aside differences. That's what Vermont's state-recognized tribes and their allies are proposing. In a statement over the summer, they wrote that between themselves and Odenak and Molinak First Nations, they, quote, can and must progress toward healing relationships. If you meet me, I'm not your enemy. I want to be your friend. Here's Rich Holshue, the chair of the Vermont Commission on Native American Affairs. I I was not present, but I heard that when family came down to uh, Ethan Allen Homestead Museum to talk about that controversial photograph, that a lot of um, personal and pleasurable conversations ended up coming out of it, and that's what I'm talking about. Holshue was referring to that protest at the Ethan Allen Homestead Museum, the one over the photograph in the exhibit curated by the Vermont nonprofit Al-Nabaiwi. I think this is a great opportunity for the um, um, Abnaki on both sides of the border to start talking. This is David Shine, the administrator for Al-Nabaiwi. He's not indigenous, but was among those from the nonprofit who spoke with the citizens and officials from Odenak. Recognized bands in Vermont are not going to give up their identity. And the Odenak folks are very, very intent on um, denying that authenticity. It seems to me, and I want to speak for them, 
And there's where you start. And this brings us to the third camp of thought, respecting the sovereignty of Odinak and Wolinak First Nations. People in this camp say they're not so much interested in talking this through with state-recognized tribes. Instead, they want to be treated as the authority on all things Abenaki. This is the main goal. This is the main thing we're, we're, we want to get at. We be the spokesperson. Danielle Nolet, Odinac's band council general manager, has been among the Odinac officials most active in advocating for Vermont to respect the sovereignty of Odinac and Wolinac First Nations. He says what he wants is essentially a return back home. To feel that we are home when we go to Vermont and we have uh, free will to practice our own traditional activities. In addition to this kind of physical homecoming to Vermont's landscape, Nolet says he wants a sort of narrative homecoming. We are still the original people of Vermont, you know, the Abenaki, Wodanak, and Mormonak. And, and, and from now on, we'll be the true spokesperson. Anybody in Vermont wants to hear you know, what, what, about the Abenakis, what's, what's their history, what's their story, what, what are their traditions, you know, their culture that we would be the spokesperson. We've already had so much stolen. Denise Watso is the Odenak citizen we heard in the first episode of this series, protesting the use of the photograph by the nonprofit Al Nobaiwi. We also heard her in Chapter 2, speaking in opposition to state recognition. We've had stolen lands we've endured. We've had disease that when, you know, Europeans hit, we've had Stolen children from residential schools and our culture and our language stolen from us. Historical traumas perpetrated for, from centuries of this. And now the only thing we have left for people to steal from us are our very own identities, our culture, our Abenaki nation. Watso has been saying the same thing for a long time, for more than a decade. She says she had to take a break. She got tired but has returned to this fight because she sees truth, quote, scratching the surface. For instance, Watso thinks it's possible that Vermont could investigate its recognition process. Remember, that's what Odenak and Wolyanak First Nations called for over the summer. My hope is one day that this does with more progressive legislators that have the courage to take this on and look at it and really truly look at it and listen to our voices. That's what I hope for. One of the key lawmakers from the state recognition process says there actually is a path to get this re-examination underway. Here's former state senator Vince Aluzzi. They have a right to petition our successors to raise those issues to see if the General Assembly wants to reconsider uh, any of the recognition requirements that are written into law, but to simply continue to harken back to, you know, 13, 15, 20 years ago doesn't really uh, I think, warrant serious consideration uh, because we did listen to them and we disagreed with them and they simply continue to disagree with our the position that we took. We're going to close this series where we opened it, on that chilly spring day in the parking lot at the Ethan Allen Homestead Museum in Burlington. Because if you're called out on it again and again, and I've heard this over and over, we just want to honor you. Well, To honor us is to listen to us, listen to what we are saying. On that day, Denise Watso was finally able to speak in Vermont, more than a decade after being shut out of the state recognition process. To me, today is empowering. 
you know, to be able to talk and to voice my upsetness with the people in that room. Empowering to have open disagreement after so many years of not having the conversation at all. Reporter Elodie Reed. Thanks so much for listening to Recognized, a special series from Brave Little State. What did you think? You can let us know by sending an email to hello at bravelittlestate.org or by leaving a voicemail on the BLS hotline. That's 802-552-4880. We're also on Instagram and Reddit at BraveStateVT. Recognized was reported by Elodie Reed. Sabine Pooks is our producer. The senior producer and managing editor is me, Josh Crane. Additional editing from our executive producer, Angela Evansy, as well as Tristan Ottone, Brittany Patterson, Myra Flynn, and Julia Futakawa. Julia, Corey Doxer, and David Savoie contributed reporting to this episode. Extra support from Mark Davis and Sophie Stevens. Theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Liam Elder Connors, Peter Hirschfeld, Abigail Giles, Mary Engish, Kiana Haskin, Kaylee Mumford, David Littlefield, Lori Kigonia, Kevin Trevelin, Mike Doherty, Laura Nakasaka, Noah Viamarine Cutter, Eric Ford, Fran Tobin, Sarah Ashworth, the Indigenous Journalists Association, and so many others. For a full list, head to our website, bravelittlestate.org. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public and a proud member of the NPR Network. Thanks for listening.